Welcome to the Build Better Software Podcast, the podcast for software leaders who want to enable their teams to build better software. I'm your host, George Stocker. Today, I'm joined by guest Ben Mosier to talk about Wordly mapping. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, George. For folks who are just meeting you for the first time, could you share a little bit about who you are and what you do? Well, um, my name is Ben Mosier. I do a little bit of this and that. Um, I kind of jokingly call myself a methodology whisperer, which um, roughly translates to, God, I wish I had a job title because I don't know how to describe myself. But, you know, roughly that means I take uh, these methods that people are using for thinking that are um, relatively unknown, um, but quite innovative. And then I try to turn them into everyday tools. So Wardly Mapping is one of those endeavors. Um, there are others, but uh, yeah, that's that's what I do. I run workshops and things like that and, and build resources for people to learn. Now for people who are new to Wardly Mapping, what is it? Yeah, Wordly Mapping is a strategic thinking tool. Um, I like to think of it as like a knowledge creation tool that enables action. Um, it was invented by uh, this lovely old man who lives in a swamp by the name of Simon Wardley. Um, he lives in the UK, and he created this method after um, quite an extensive bit of research into what I, I would basically point at as being um, kind of fundamental patterns of capitalism. Wardley mapping the practice is basically three things. It's first and foremost a visual communication method. Uh, it's about kind of creating an artifact that we can challenge and have a conversation around uh, that, that's visual. And the second thing is it's a body of research around these patterns of supply and demand competition. You know, how does capitalism basically work? How do things evolve? And then the final thing is a strategic thinking process that kind of ties both those things together uh, in order to enable you to make new decisions uh, based on seeing a kind of strategic landscape that most will not be able to see. Um, so it's a knowledge creation tool in order to enable you to take action. Okay, and now with Wordly mapping, when, when you start out with it, what are you mapping? Yeah, so when you make a Wordly map, uh, what you're focusing on are things like, you know, what is the system that you're a part of? And you kind of have to make some curatorial decisions about how, how um, some curatorial decisions about what scope to pay attention to, but you could say map a business or you can map a market. Uh, you could even map yourself as an individual, but roughly what you're doing is focusing on what is the system? What is its parts? How do they relate together? Um, and then you do two things. You think about how the system produces value for somebody, some user, um, and then you also think about how those parts are changing under the pressures of supply and demand competition, which is capitalism. So what is the system? How is it changing? How does it produce value for users? And this basically creates a way for you to interact meaningfully with the world by modeling it. Uh, we can get into more of what that actually looks like, but it, it's not as complicated or weird as it sounds. It's literally just, what are the parts? You know, What are they like? And how should we treat those parts? How should we have intent with respect to each of those parts? Now, how do you spend your days with worldly mapping? 
So I spend um, time with teams doing strategic kind of training exercises where what we'll do is we'll kind of go through the basics of worthy mapping. We'll apply doctrinal principles about, you know, what you ought to do as individuals in an organization, um, how to think about um, basically what's, what's a universal principle that you can apply to the work that you're doing, um, that, that a value that you all kind of share. And uh, then also thinking about what Simon calls climatic patterns, which is basically like, what, what is relatively predictable about capitalism that if we only took the time to notice, um, we could actually use that to anticipate change that's occurring in, in the wider market. Um, and then like finally just thinking about how to go about strategic thinking. I get more energized by the thought of getting into kind of like what, what, what is that you're doing, George, like with this podcast and what, what are the big questions you're trying to answer and then the, you and I riffing off of that, given the context of what I do and given the context of mapping and how I think about those things. And I, f- I feel like a lot of energy coming in, out of that kind of conversation and kind of nodding toward the mapping without having to like get, make, make it the focus so much, if that makes no. sense. No, I, I really like what you said. And um, that's, that's key is that, you know, I, I believe that we, as software developers and as and and as a practice software development itself is still in its infancy Mm. um you look at you look at construction and they have building codes upon building codes upon building codes they can tell you to a t how much a bridge will cost Mm. how what it can hold you know who's it for what does it do and with software development we can barely tell you how long a a little feature will take and that's after 60 years of doing it um, and that's and we're just, still having fights about about like whether or not estimates are a valid thing to do. Exactly. Like, what? <laughs> can, can you imagine? And you know, to the point about building, can you imagine if the building codes were like, yeah, you don't need blue, blueprints. Uh, <laughs> but we build software every day without <laughs> blueprints, without specifications, and we actively deride teams that do produce specifications that do produce. Uh, tests in the form of test-driven development. Now, what I focus on is I focus on, I want every software team out there to know about test-driven development, and I want to make it accessible for all software developers to a point that, you know, it becomes, I believe it can become the standard way of developing software. Now, I believe that we have have taught it uh, incorrectly. Uh, We have glossed over the hard parts. And, and we have, you know, oversimplified it and not gone to hmm. you know, when you would use it, how you'd use it, why you'd use it, who it's for and who it's not for. Uh, and what the, you know, the two standard schools of TDD get right and what they get wrong. Hmm. And if you go inside out, as an example, if you go in that inside out TDD, you're so focused on the feature that you forget the world around you. And when, by the time it comes to getting to integrating with the world around you, you, you're doing it haphazardly or you're not able to do it at all. Uh, and then from the other side, if you go on the outside in and you take in the whole context of the world that you're operating around you, you're coupling yourself to that world through the use mm-hmm. of mocks and stops. Yeah. And there are other ways. And in fact, um, someone named Gary Bernhardt talks about a style called FOO, uh, which is you know, a melding of the two worlds. You, inside of your domain, inside of your business context, you keep yourself isolated from everybody. And then around that, that's the functional core of your soft, of your system. Mm. And that's completely done through TDD. 
has no outside dependencies, doesn't deal with anything, uh, databases, APIs, or anything. But outside of that, that, that imperative shell, that part where you talk with the world, has very few entry points into your, into your domain, into your application. And those, you don't TDD. You, know, you may write end-to-end -end tests for those, but you've reduced, because all of your system is inside of that domain, is isolated from the world, you've reduced the surface area that your end-to-end -end tests have to cover. Mm, yeah. You know, from two to the end, uh, down to uh, relatively a, a handful. Um, but we, as a software development community, you know, have not embraced TDD because the way that we were taught it, you know, we were, we were taught these systems that, that, you know, you got three rules, they just work and they, they don't just work. Um, <laughs> you know, mocks and stubs don't make testing easier. They make testing harder, mm -hmm. but we, we've not given enough attention to the practice and really diving into the practice and sharing its value. You know, how how can it help your beginning software developer? Uh, and we have not gotten into how it can help teams uh, and businesses. And I think that if we we hone in on the business aspect and the value it provides to businesses as far as fewer regression bugs, uh, faster time to market, because you know, you're not worried about making changes to the system. If we focus on things like that and we focus and we give each person to your point about these people and, or these uh, capabilities and these parts in the worldly map. Um, you know, software developers worry about one thing. QA worries about another. The business people worry about a third thing. They worry about the value they're going to get out of this feature. Um, but if we you know, focus on what can, how can doing TDD um, give you the value that you're looking for, no matter what your position in the company is, uh, I think we might have a better time for it instead of focusing solely on developers, which is what we've been doing uh, for the past yeah. 20 years with TDD, and it hasn't worked. It's <laughs> it's demonstrably failed. Um, so we've got to change our tactics. And that's why I am here. That's why, that's why I care. I believe that all software teams can produce value and produce more value for their customers uh, faster. And I believe that software development itself must change. It must adapt to the world around it. And it must produce some sort of standard in order to be able to produce software reliably, which we still can't do. <laughs> um, and I think that uh, something like FOO uh, style of TDD will get us there. It will get us much closer. It may not, you know, it may not be the the end thing, but it is the next thing. Um, and that's what I that's what I help teams do. Yeah. So it's like the FOO manifesto. <laughs> right. No, yeah. And it's not like none of this is original to me. Like I, I learned about it when I went to PyCon in 2012. Uh, Gary Bernhardt was on stage and you know, he's he's talking about it in the context of his own site, Destroy All Software, uh, and in the context of it and its billing mechanism. And during this, I was watching it unfold and I had been well versed in TD to that point, both. Uh, from the inside out perspective and the outside in. And I had, I had been dealing with all the problems that he talked about, you know, mocks and stubs and how brittle they were. Because once you start mocking something, you're now, you're now coupled to it. If you're mocking a method, you are coupled to that method being called. And it had bothered me because we would get failures in our test suites for no reason other than, hey, we took out this implementation detail. We're no longer calling this method inside of, you know, these three other methods. And that would break the tests. And it shouldn't break the tests. Hmm. 
but in his talk, which is called Boundaries, um, he goes through, you know, this is what functional core imperative shell looks like. This is how you can model your system so that you, you return primitives inside, inside of that functional core. Um, you don't mutate objects. You know, you stay away from the OO, which is, hey, I just have one object and I mutated state. Now you always return a new object with that new state and you never mutate objects. Also, uh, you deal with primitives. You don't deal with uh, how external, for, for instance, the active record pattern would return you uh, an object. You don't deal with that. You deal with your own method of object retrieval. Now it turns out the shell side of it, when you do have to talk to the database, uh, you're going to have to deal with that mapping. But inside of your domain, that mapping is entirely your domain objects, uh, your primitives that don't have external dependencies. And mm. you start there. Um, that's how you decompose your system. So it's, it's heavy into a domain-driven design flair of understanding your bounded contexts, of understanding your domain, and of speaking in the customer's language. <clears throat> now, from yeah. all that, you can, uh, from all that, you can you know, make sure that the actual business work that your system does uh, is testable and is fully tested through test-driven development. And then your um, your your shell, you know, the delivery mechanism of your software, is the thing that you need to write end-to-end -end tests for. But that's you know that's an API endpoint or two. That's not you know trying to have that API endpoint do all of the internals of your system as well. Hmm. Yeah. What I'm, what I'm, so here, here's a, you know, here's an admission, right? So I'm a former systems administrator and I have, I'll be honest, I couldn't tell you the difference between a, uh, I couldn't tell you the difference between a, uh, a stub and a mock. I almost said a mub and a stock and I'm not sure. <laughs> they should have named them that. that would have been yeah, honestly. No. Um, but like what, what's interesting though, is I heard you do something that I, I hear people do when they learn worthy mapping. I heard you disambiguate a term that is used almost ubiquitously. So test driven development, right? You, you took that thing and you made it two things. And then you talk me through how, each of those things is used in different contexts. And then uh, you described that as a third thing. So test-driven development is now three different things. It's inside out, outside in, and then the third one, which I, you know, of course, have no idea what the name is called, but it sounded like fun to pronounce. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, uh, Gary Bernhardt calls it FOO, uh, and it is it's exactly a third way to do TDD. Um, yeah. Now, from wordly mapping with, with test-driven development, would there be a way to map out, you know, a team adopting TDD through wordly mapping? Yeah, it's it's really the question, like, how would you ever be able to have the conversation? Like, what conditions would you have to create to have the conversation where you could contextualize each sub-practice of TDD into a context that you, in a way that you would enable you to know when to deploy which one? And so, like, you shift the conversation from uh, which one is right always to which one is right in which case and what conditions would you have to create in order to have that kind of conversation and and frankly the answer without something like worthy mapping is uh luck to be honest or, or really like incredible intuition perhaps 
and kind of like I know we were um, talking before a little bit about like human shock absorbers. Sometimes the embodied kind of cognition that people have, they have these like uh, tacit things that they just know without being able to explain. And so sometimes they'll pick up on something like that and be able to have the right conversation. But like that looks an awful lot like luck to me. Um, so I, I would rather have a predictable way to create conditions for conversations where we could disambiguate like big messy things like TDD into context specific deployment of specific methods. Now I just used a bunch of $5 words. So I'm going to like take a break and uh, pat myself on the back. But, but let, let's, let's get really like concrete. This is, this is what you did. You, you took TDD, you split it apart. And then you said in one context, do this in another context, do that. That's right. What you, what you did was you, you had a struggle of ontology. What is test-driven development? And you, you brought in a language of existing models, which is exactly what you can do when you're getting started. You're like, well, okay, the thing that is test-driven development actually turns out to be several different things. And so when should we use one over the other is an interesting question. So just, just pointing out that there are multiple things enables you to actually uh, say, hey, we should use one in one case in another in another case. So, so what, what happens next? Like what, what, what are you thinking about um, uh, with respect to like, yeah, actually um, here's the question. Like how would you create like currently create the possibility for that conversation? Like how, how would you enable a team that you were managing to have that kind of conversation? Yeah. So for me, um, I'm always interested in the, the bottom line in what will this do for me or for the team or for the business or for the customer? Um, you know, we adopt TDD. What's why? Like, why are we doing it? Are we doing it because we have lots of regression uh, when we deliver code? Are we doing it because we find it hard to change code? Are we doing it because we, you know, heard on a podcast it was a good idea? <laughs> why are we even doing this thing? And that's the first question that I want to answer. Um, and I want to get I mean, that down on paper. Most of the time, the reasons people are adopting things is fashion and tribalism, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's what, what's awesome. That's the phrase that I stole from Andrew Clay Schaefer. But basically, it's like, what's really cool that people are talking about that gets me excited because, you know, what have you, like hundreds of companies are doing this, so we should do it too. Um, or you know, our group of people who believe this thing versus that group of people that believes in that thing. N nobody's asking what test-driven development actually makes possible for us. When we have it as a capability in the organization, what does it enable for us? Yeah. So for what I've seen is when you, when you do TDD and you use the right, and then you went, you, you hit on it earlier and you really hit on the center of it is that not all forms of TDD are acceptable in all situations. Um, but when you apply the right form of test-driven development to the right situation, to the right code base, you give yourself, you give the team confidence. So if your team is lacking confidence or you have a lot of new developers to the team, you're giving them confidence that when they make changes, those changes won't break anything else, which as a developer new to a code base, that's the first thing I'm thinking of is I don't want to be embarrassed in front of my teammates <laughs> because I just made a change and I broke production. I don't want that to happen. From a business's perspective, you're gaining the confidence that you can deploy 
at Friday at 5 p.m. You know, there's that meme, you don't deploy on Friday. And if you have a testable system and a system that is tested, uh, you you gain that confidence of, hey, I really need this fix to go out right now. Can we do it? And you, and as a business, you can now you know start to answer yes to that question. From a system perspective, from a maintainability perspective, uh, you're now looking at there. There's and I I see it every time I'm I'm with a, a new team is the desire to rewrite, this mm. di- desire to get rid of this thing and to replace it with this <laughs> mythical new thing that is so much better. And well, never I mean that's, that's a problem of discipline too, right? It's like <laughs> it's it's like this assumption that like hey, if we just rewrite it again, it'll be fine. And so you you start this this whole new effort without having all of the understanding or the skills that would make writing good software possible, expecting to get a different result. And I, I do believe there's a word for that, George. And it's called insanity. Um, and I, I've been guilty of it myself. And I've also been in situations where, you know, the rewrite decision was made before I came in and I was asked to implement the rewrite and say, mm-hmm. look, and I, I had to keep saying, like, this is not going to go the way you think it is. Um, because the rewrite, you don't have the people who produce the original system usually. You don't have the original context. And you don't know all the cases where the system is in use. Like you, there's a yeah. Systematics uh, Twitter account that I love. Uh, but it's basically like the, it, it, it tweets out, you know, things that are real in systems. Um, for instance, the system does what it wants to do. You know, it's <laughs> not, it has its own agenda. Um, but you don't know those things when you rewrite and you just think that the system is what you see in code uh, instead of the whole context. Not to mention that the, oftentimes the business doesn't even know what the software is supposed to be doing. The business probably couldn't tell you how the software actually fulfills user needs in a way that produces profit for the organization. Because like this is, this is like unintentionality, which is a word I'm going to make up for whatever reason. Like it's the absence of being intentional is it all the way down it is it starts at the highest level of the ac suite and it goes all the way down into our, our engineer engineering organizations product organizations operations organizations it doesn't matter where you look you're going to find this disconnect and so the the question becomes like you as a software developer or or you as a software leader trying to make an informed decisions uh, with respect to this entire system of unintentionality it becomes really, really hard. And so of course it just, it starts to feel like, uh, well, uh, it's a mess and we didn't manage the legacy well. So I guess we should just rewrite it because that's at least going to be approved by the business as a like a panacea, right? Or a panacea. That's going to at least be approved by the business as a, as a cure-all for the problem because, you know, they don't know any, diff- uh, they don't know any better either. Yeah. And sometimes it might be. There are instances where a rewrite is the best thing for the team. But, you know, for for businesses that don't want to chance a rewrite and for teams that have the situational awareness to realize they don't know what they don't know about the system, uh, introducing characterization tests to figure out what the system does. And then from that, you know, producing um, test driven development uh, tests, you know, to port over new functionality to put it under test. Uh, and then gradually refactoring the system using those characterization tests, refactor parts of the system into something that you know is produced or can be maintained through test-driven development uh, helps. But that goes to those three different types of test-driven development. Um, you know, if you're producing a new feature in isolation and then you'll integrate it later, maybe inside out is your best way to go. You know, 
worry about your feature, worry about what it does, specify it through tests, implement those tests, or implement the test, implement the code for the test, uh, and, and repeat that. Um, you know, that's best when you have a feature in isolation and you're not as worried about trying to integrate it into a larger system. Whereas outside in, uh, or, you know, introducing mocks and stubs, so mocking out things you don't own or stubbing the state of the system, uh, or stubbing parts of the system that you're using, um, you know, that's good when you're trying to, uh, take something existing and put it under test. Uh, mm. It's a good first step. The problem with mocks, and I said this earlier, the problem with mocks is that they tie you to an implementation. You know, I verified that this method was called. Well, yeah, in refactoring, we might end up removing that method. And if we're not careful and don't realize that it's being called in this test somewhere or by a dependency, uh, it's going to fail. Our tests will fail even though nothing changed behaviorally. And then that introduces that nice third style of, of um, test-driven development, FOO which allows you to then test the behavior of the system and not worry about the implementation. Uh, I'm testing the behavior of this billing uh, reconciliation feature. I don't care what methods actually get called. All I care about my input is, you know, this, this bill, uh, the state of the system is this bill is in a certain state. And all I want to know is, you know, is it reconciled or not? Mm. And with that, you can then change a lot of the implementation and your tests don't get affected by it. Yeah, one of the things that seems really critical in, in, in designing an organization, let alone designing software, which, I mean, Conway's law is, is a thing, but like roughly speaking, where are the boundaries between the parts of the system? And very quickly in both an organization and in software, you start to realize that entangledness is one, a necessary evil, but also something that shouldn't be allowed to dominate as, a, as an extreme or a default, right? So like, what, what I mean by that is like tightly coupling things, right? Where, where like you're being tied to implementations is probably not a great thing to do if the, there's a chance in the future that, that that thing has to change, right? And so you have, to, you have to pay attention to change. And if like it's a 5% chance that that thing will have to change in 20 years, then maybe who cares? Right? right. But like if there's an 80% chance that in the next six months, um, there's going to be security vulnerability that requires you to actually adjust the, the implementation in a way that would have, you know, cascading effects on all the other parts of the software, uh, then, then yeah, maybe I, I, I should be a little bit more concerned about being tied to an impl implementation in that case. Um, so, so one of the things that I really like, so Wardly mapping really points at this idea of interfaces. And, and cell-based structures, both for organizations, but also for, uh, I think in particular, software. So, so what is the interface? How do you create those clean lines? And unfortunately, there's like this whole body of skills that you have to build in order to do that. You have to be comfortable like taking a decent guess under circumstances of ambiguity, where to draw the lines, what to include inside the boundaries and what to push outside the boundaries. And if you're not careful, what you start to see is that in an organization, say between a development organization and an operations organization, you'll notice that there are things that get stuck between those two so like sets of things in the, in the organization that they're just, you know, crust that's stuck somewhere and nobody's responsible for it. And so it, it starts to decay and it starts to smell. Um, similarly in software, if you don't have clean lines that like 
make responsibility for each part of the software clear, you really start to notice how like that is the zone of no maintenance. <laughs> the, those right. are the things that will not be touched. And, and that is equally applicable to organizational theory uh, from, from the same way, like peoples in teams. That's right. And you're going to get it wrong. Um, that the one reason if you use domain driven design and you think about your bounded context, uh, which is, you know, inside of this context, a word means what it, what it means. And outside the context, this word may mean something else, but in this context, yeah, uh, the word has a specific meaning. It's not going to change in this context. If you use things like your, your bounded context and the domain, the, the language of the customer, the language of the problem you're trying to solve, you, you start to see where, um, you know, where things are defined and what they relate to. And you start to see uh, those those boundaries crop up just from when words change meaning. Mm. Um, you know, change management means something completely different to a uh, a business person than it means to me. Um, <laughs> and it means something very different to a consultant as well. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, when I know that word has changed meaning, I know I've crossed a boundary of some sort. And you're going to get it wrong. Um, one of the tenets of TDD is that you don't start out with the right, uh, you don't start out with the right architecture. You're going to evolve to it because you're going to learn every time that you add a new test to test out a new feature, or you add a new feature. The system is going to change its shape, and you'll figure out you know what the system and you know what it should look like uh, through that evolution because you don't like you're never going to know less then you know about something at the beginning. So if I'm, if I got a new system, I will never know less than I know about it right now. You know, every moment I will learn more and more and more. And you hope that when you learn more and more and more, the system's easier, easy to change. If it's not easy to change, that's a, that's a smell. That it's a huge smell. If for example, like you need to do a lot of exploring, right? Actually, and this is where like the worthy mapping concept of evolution starts to become really helpful here. So like we may, if, you, if you've looked at worthy mapping, you know there's a, this x-axis kind of like idea of evolution, right? Four stages from genesis to custom build to product and commodity. Um, you can also look at that through the lenses of like practices. So like emerging, sorry, novel practice, emerging, uh, Novel practice, emerging practice, good and best. And so there's this progression from left to right. And how, like, how evolved something is changes the way that you should treat it. So for example, things that are in like the first couple stages of evolution, so Genesis or custom build, um, those have to be easy to change because they're so uncertain. Like you, you almost have to assume that like nine times out of 10, you're going to do the wrong thing the first time. And so that's where you start to see things like agile being really helpful, um, where you're basically trying to lower the cost of change of that thing mm. so that you can change as many times as is necessary until you find the value, as in find the right form of the thing that produces value for the people that you're serving uh, by building the thing in the first place. Now, that's completely different from, say, uh, like if you're looking at something like a login function, right? Generally speaking, auth n auth z like these are things that are broadly understood and for you to reinvent that wheel and to pretend like you need a, a low cost of change and you need to rapidly change around logins is kind of absurd if you compare that to the way that the rest of the industry treats that kind of practice and so there instead of reinventing the wheel and using an agile method like you might actually want to just adopt something 
um, either in terms of the design or in terms of an external solution because it's so well understood. Um, and of course, you're going to have trouble like adapting it to your local context, to your software. But in truth, you don't want to be have to be the expert in that thing. And, and a, a high cost of change is okay because the thing isn't going to change in 20 years very much. So it, it's like trying to understand how do you contextualize a practice? How do you contextualize like each of the different sub practices of TBD? W what does each thing depend on? What does each thing, um, what depends on each thing? It's like you look up, look down. How does it, how is it situated in this larger scope of things such that you could make those nuanced decisions without just re reverting basically to like a, my way or the highway kind of approach? That's really interesting because as you're describing it, I'm seeing, you know, both the forms of TDD um, and when they would be used and on types of systems and on what aspects of the systems. Like I'm seeing that overlay onto the worldly map. So something that, you know, is going to change a lot. I may want to put a lot of effort into making sure that it, um, that part is designed through TDD, mm -hmm. but something that interfaces with the login mechanism that's over on the commodity side of the worldly map. I may not, I may only want to have uh, an end-to-end -end test around it and yeah. you know, an automated uh, an automated UI test around it. I may not even want to deal with that from a uh, from a developer I'm writing, you know, tests for this perspective because you know it's it's not in uh, the novel um, or the emerging. It's you know it's over there on the commodity side of things. Yeah, it's like how how certain is it and and do you really need to doubt that it's working? Now, it, it, and it also depends on like your organizational context. Like if this thing doesn't work, what are the implications, right? If this thing uh, spits out garbage data, you know, what are the implications of that? Like, are people going to die? Or is it just that, you know, someone gets a 404 page when they weren't expecting to, right? So, and that's where you start to notice that, look, the whole system of software and the, and the organization building the software is a bunch of little negotiations between you know, different parts of that system. And so that's when you start to find that things like SRE are really interesting because it, it explicitly calls out that negotiation as a function of what Site you, reliability engineering. Exactly. Yeah. And like, ju just if you go read the free, like just the one chapter from Google on SRE about um, uh, SLOs and SLIs, like just go look at that chapter and think about what it means to negotiate a boundary like that between operations and development, for example. And you start to recognize that this, this whole thing, all of this that we're doing, like we might think that software is like understood or understandable. It is one giant human mess and that's actually okay. But we, we should probably be careful about um, where things are more or less uncertain and if we more explicitly have the kinds of conversations around negotiations between the, the boundaries of these components, we can actually start to uh, be more intentional about how we're treating each thing. Like until we can build a software system that doesn't turn into a giant ball of yarn in like a giant tangled knot, um, eventually, if, <laughs> until software systems are not inevitably going to res result in that kind of, or end up in that kind of state, um, I, I have a really hard time thinking of software development as something that's known. Yeah. 
That's uh, you. Would you put it on the emerging uh, end of the scale? Possibly just to be a pain in the ass, but <laughs> <laughs> like I, I think that it's an interesting question. And when you break down software development into its hundreds and hundreds of different sub practices, asking the question "What is software development?" becomes not super easy. And every single one of those sub practices is somewhere along that spectrum of evolution. Um, and unless you're aware of that, I think you'll be reinventing the wheel for the foreseeable future. Mm. And now we're really down getting into the, the value of wordly mapping, which as a software leader, I can use it to contextualize my team, our practices, our relation to the business. Uh, and I can, you know, give myself a view of where are we at, what are we doing and how does it fit, uh, in this larger context? Um, it, a way to visualize, you know, what is, uh, as opposed to you know, what we want it to be. Hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting because it enables conversation. Like once you start sketching out artifacts like this, you can look internally and say, okay, how should we be behaving? Like how how should we treat this set of components? Um, and then you can compare that to the way that the larger market treats that component. Um, and you can say, okay, well, how is everybody else doing? Um, especially in like public sector, like public sector can learn from private sector, for example, and go like, what are, what are our counterparts in private sector doing? Like maybe they're not bound in certain ways that we're bound, but can we at least like learn from the way that they're doing like authentication or something like that, right? Mm. You, there, there's a lot of learning that you can have just by looking outside of your organization and doing basic like open source intelligence gathering, like read the press releases of other companies when they talk about the thing that, that is re somewhat related to what you do. Um, and, and you'll learn a lot about how different people view that same thing. But then you have to talk about time <laughs> because if you notice a gap between what you're doing and what others are doing, um, and that gap isn't valuable, like it's not differentiating, it's just a waste of time. So for example, if you're custom building a login function, I know I keep like hammering on that example, when you should probably just be adopting a library um, it's gonna, it's gonna take a little bit of work for you to get from point A to point B to actually resolve that bias. And so when time starts to be involved, you end up comparing like your, de your desired internal future state against where the rest of the market is going to be in like however long it's going to take for you to make that change. Because if, if you, if you set your ideal future state internally, to the current way that things are externally and the world keeps changing, then you might embark on a big heavy lift for nothing if the world changes significantly enough for um, your change to be out of date. I know this is like a really hard way to like explain the, the phenomenon, but it's like that's what happens to most organizations when it comes to business strategy is even if it's just a gut feeling, by the time the organization actually implements the strategic initiative, so to speak, the rest of the world has moved on and that may no longer be the right thing. So like this whole, like, unless you can have conversations about how to tackle that problem, like I don't see a lot of hope for the, for the, the quality of decisions being made either in terms of the software that we're building or in terms of the strategy that we're implementing in our businesses. Yeah. Now for software leaders, I think those conversations less on the business side, but more on the, you know, what tech stack should we 
use? What database uh, should we use? You know, what practices should we adopt among our team to building software? Uh, a thing that I see yeah. is that, you know, they try to answer those questions first instead of answering those questions after they've done what you've suggested, which is figure out, you know, strategically as a business, where do we want to be? Because once, unlike, unlike other, uh, unlike code, if you're using a data store, you're going to become coupled to that data store unless you're very, very careful. And I've not yet seen a, seen a team that was careful enough hmm. not to become coupled uh, to some aspect of their data store. And so, you know, if I'm sticking around and I choose Mongo and I say, well, you know, we're going to use Mongo. And then, you know, two years later, there's that nice article about how Mongo loses data. We're like, uh oh, we need to get off Mongo. Well, we're pretty coupled to it. That's not happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but it sounds like with Wardly mapping, you know, we can, we can, we can situate where we want to be strategically as a business. We can orient the software team towards that ideal future state. And then from there, you know, make decisions based off those factors. Yeah, I think for software leaders in particular, what something like Wardly Mapping enables you to do is to be intentional in a local way. And I, I basically just mean, when you look at all the parts of the system that you're responsible for, do you have an intention for each part? Um, and that's, that's a serious obstacle for most uh, because until they, until they are able to actually grapple with all the parts of the system, they're not going to be able to make sense of it in a way um, that together it is like a coherent strategy. And, and in particular, I think like software leaders need to have that kind of intent because otherwise they're going to become subject to what I would very um, lovingly call meddling from other parts of the organization. Not because those other parts of the organization are bad or anything, but it's more like they just have priorities and they have things that they think they want. And if you're about to make a new decision about either what data store to start with, or whether or not the news that Mongo's losing data, for example, is a significant enough you know, impetus to actually change the data store, if you, if you aren't prepared with local intent for each part, then you're probably going to end up being swayed by the political winds and you'll be making decisions based on other people's feelings. And I, for one, value feelings, but I don't think they are necessarily the primary way that you make decisions, especially decisions with uh, impacts that last many, many, many years. So when, when I think about this, I, I think it's strictly about being able to to understand why you made the decisions that you made, especially when others around you aren't, uh, when they aren't sure about those decisions that, you, that, they, that they're making. This is a really like messy thing because you soon start to realize that like Wardly mapping in particular looks like just a, a like, oh, it's just another diagramming technique. And I, I know the DDD people like seem to like it as well <laughs> as an approach. And like, I, I'm encouraged by that. But like w- what I think is like the, what I think is hidden underneath the surface of all that is it's all about conversations. And in particular, it's all about conversations about deep social problems inside the organization that are not going to be obvious that you can't exactly code your way out of. And um, when, when someone comes to you and says, I want to do this and it's, it's a bad idea 
but you don't have a reason to say that it's a bad idea other than it just feels wrong, you're, you're going to lose. But wordly mapping can help you show why it's a bad idea in context. It really, like wordly mapping is one tool in a, in a huge set of tools that can help you be more intentional about the work that you're doing. Um, I, I for sure have experienced circumstances where by mapping out a space, um, honestly, one of, the, one of the typical experiences is you map out a space and you go, oh no, I made a decision a long time ago that really is hurting me right now. Um, and frankly, like the earlier you, you rip that bandaid off the better, but once, once you've reckoned with it, you start to recognize that you have an intent and when you have an intent, you start to care about it. Yeah. <laughs> it makes sense. I should do this, this way. This is what I'm trying to do. And, and ideally you're having that conversation with other people around you, um, in a way that brings them along and helps them even challenge some of your ideas using some of the this kind of language like well what, what okay yeah you you want to choose mongo but mongo entails all these dependencies is that going to be right for us and if you can't answer those questions then you know then that was an effective challenge and you've all learned something now because you'll go off and, and find out what you need to find out in order to answer that question but um otherwise um the other way that this works sometimes is just that people are will be making decisions based on their feelings and they'll try to impose those decisions on, on your organization. And especially when you're in charge of an organization that in, like, is full of other people, um, when their lives are disrupted because of someone else's feelings in the organization, um, you know, that, that's going to really hurt morale, especially if it doesn't make local sense to them. If you can't help communicate intent from other areas of the organization and make it make sense, then you're just going to produce an organization that is just doing what it's told instead of thinking actively about how to make good decisions in terms of building software. Sorry, it was a bit of a rant, but like... No, that's, that's great. And that's, that gets to the value that you provide in, in teaching teams worldly mapping is that you can help them uh, ensure that their teams are uh, producing software intentionally by mapping out. Yeah, so here's what I'd say. If... If some of the things that I may that if some of the things that I just said, um, even if they don't make sense, if they're intriguing to you, then what I would highly recommend is go to learnwordlymapping.com and just click around a bit until you find some things that are interesting to you. And if you decide that it's interesting, go read the book, ask me questions. You can email me. Um, either through the website or by emailing ben at hiredthought.com. Reach out and tell me what's going on and I'll help you get started. Like I, I love helping people start to make sense of their worlds with this stuff because you know, it betrays my optimism. Even, um, you know, even now, uh, it betrays my optimism around how if people are just more intentional, I think they'll bring more good about, about into the world. Um, I want to help you get started. So contact me, say hello, ask questions. Um, th there's a lot of good resources just to start getting exposed to the method. And what I'll have to say above all, uh, do it. Like actually sit down with a piece of paper and, and follow the steps and try to do the process. And if you don't learn something, I will be surprised. I, I think I'm actually going to do that. Uh, I'm going to sit down and I hadn't done it yet, 
but you'd sent me some materials on worldly mapping. And I'd like to sit down and, and put test-driven development in that context uh, and see you know, what that looks like. But Ben, this has been, this has been an amazing time. Um, you know, people can find you online at learningworldlymapping.com and they can email you at ben at hiredthought.com. Are there any other uh, ways that people can find you online? Yep. I'm on Twitter as well at hired thought. Um, I was going to say something uh, self demeaning because I hate that handle, but here we are. <laughs> branding is branding. Yep. I'm on Twitter at hired thought and uh, I'm pretty accessible on there. What, what I'll say right now is uh, like we're, we're recording this on June 3rd and you know, the United States is hurting and I think a lot of people uh, are hurting in general. And what I will say is like right now I'm not tweeting so much because of that context and I want to be respectful, but if there's one thing that you could do, even if you don't care at all about worldly mapping, if there's one thing that you could do that would help uh, yourself and help those around you, it's learn a little bit more about race and the context of race and the way that it manifests in the United States. And um, what I'll say is um, there, include this in the show notes as well. It's, it's a, a URL to a list of books and other suggestions by Tatiana Mack. Um, you can access that URL by going to lwm.events slash race. Uh, it's open up a page with some books that I highly recommend you engage with. And um, I'm currently reading the new Jim Crow. And frankly, I am learning about some things that I didn't know before for the first time. And I'm kind of ashamed about that. So uh, use that shame for good. Um, don't let me be shame, <laughs> shaming myself in vain. Um, go learn about um, race and, and learn why this country is experiencing the anger that it is. That's, that's critically uh, important. Um, anybody who's watched my Twitter feed over the past few days has just, just seen retweeting and uh, showing what's happening. Uh, in these protests and, and how the protesters are being treated um, by people in power. And I, I second, uh, you know, and I will put in the show notes, uh, Tatiana's work. Um, I've, I've read some of it. I'm buying the books that she's linked to, not on Amazon, but I'm buying the books that she's linked to. And I, I second, it's, you know, it's really important. I struggled whether or not to bring up that we are indeed recording this on June 3rd. Um, two days past the point where a sitting president ordered military or civilian cops to clear out uh, the area right in front of the White House for a photo opportunity. And just that, whether or not you agree with that act or not, just how historic and um, context changing that action is, you know, what it represents, uh, who it affects and more importantly, what it says about us as a culture uh, as to what we allow and what we don't allow. And that's not even including you know, all of the really important events that have happened up until this point um, that we as a culture have not yet learned from. Uh, we've not changed, we've not improved, and hopefully these uh, protests mark a turning point where we as a culture take a good hard look at ourselves, uh, at our, at our past and say never again and, and actually, um, live the values that we claim that we have. 
uh, on that note, Ben, it's been uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for taking the time out of your day. Thanks, George. Uh, to talk with me. And um, all right, folks, that's it for today. Uh, I'm George Stalker, and I hope you'll join me next time uh, on the Build Better Software Podcast. Thanks.